if you want to be a guest, please email me. I have received so many emails of people that are excited and passionate about being a guest on this show. The process is time consuming. I go through about an hour long pre-interview and I determine where you'd fit best in the season. So if you've gone through the pre-interview process or we've messaged back and forth via email and haven't gone through the pre-interview process, I'm not ignoring you, I, I promise. There's just a lot on my plate and I am one person. That being said, I look forward to talking with every one of you that is interested in being on this podcast. Y'all are amazing. And I honestly could not do this podcast without the support that I receive from each one of you. So thank you so much. Welcome to the Focus on Your Own Family podcast. Fundamentalist evangelicalism impacted a generation. We survived physical, psychological, mental, and spiritual abuse. We survived the Focus on the Family movement, and we want to talk about it. Trigger warning, guests will be sharing stories of domestic violence, child abuse, and animal abuse. Please listen with caution. Thank you. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Focus on Your Own Family breakdown. I thought this would be a really interesting thing to do now that we are into season two. And what I will be doing in these short episodes is sharing what my thoughts were during the time that I was interviewing people. So these will drop on Monday morning and you can listen to my commentary. I had Carissa for an interview and I was immediately struck. She's a returning podcast interview. And if you didn't catch her in season one, make sure to go and listen to that because she talks about her homeschool upbringing and the isolation and loneliness that she felt. In this one, she talks about purity culture and she really expands on that because I know she talked about it in the first season when she was on. But in this one, she talks about how this impacted her former marriage that she had with her ex-husband and talks about how that impacts and has impacted her view on the spectrum that is human sexuality. I think that was an important thing to talk about given where she goes inside of the podcast. Carissa talks about her experiences leading up to being on OnlyFans. And while I was talking with her and even leading up to this interview, I had conversations with her and then I had conversations with my spouse about exploitation and morality. And Carissa and I are going to go deeper into that space of morality. And I'm recognizing now that morality is just, it's a philosophy because what is moral for you might not be moral for somebody else. And I think that there's the social contract that we have saying, I'm not going to steal from you. You're not going to steal from me. That is our baseline for morality. I am taken aback by my own personal views on that concept of morality and how I have always held such archaic conceptions of this, how 
women have to be this way, dress this way, talk this way, act this way in order to be considered moral people. And as I have deconstructed and decolonized these concepts, I have recognized the rigidity in the space that I operated in and lived in and how I was outwardly manifesting my need to feel control over things because I felt so out of control because I wasn't allowed to have control over my own sexuality, over my own body, that I felt like I needed to hold those rigid spaces and those rigid lines over other people. That obviously comes from purity culture. The conversation about empowerment and exploitation is something that is so important to have because in the church, as young girls, our personhood was exploited on a regular basis through purity culture. Men were taught, boys were taught, that it is normal to objectify women. And as women, we came to expect that sometimes even felt like if we didn't receive that, if we didn't, if we weren't oogled by somebody, if we weren't objectified by somebody, then our self-worth diminished and we would immediately become self-conscious and almost depressed. Like what, what is it that I don't have that men don't want to stare at? that grown men don't want to stare at. And so we would actually work towards achieving this innocent sexuality because we knew that if men found us attractive, then we would get a husband. And that was what we were working towards. And inside of that is shame because there was that fine line. So it's interesting to talk about that exploitation part versus empowerment. And empowerment, I think, comes when we decolonize and we deconstruct purity culture. And then we get to be the ones in the driver's seat saying, I'm not going to feel shame if I wear this particular outfit, or I'm not going to feel shame if I take this photo because it's something that I choose to do. I'm the one making this choice. And another thing that we talk about is the situation that she dealt with growing up with somebody. And again, she talks about this in the in season one, where somebody was taking photos of her along with other young girls as well, and how she didn't really understand what was going on at the time, and even just trying to rationalize that as an adult was so challenging because you still see that from the lens of a child. Those that grow up in the evangelical movement have a tendency to have their emotional and sexual and mental health stunted at the age of 13 or 14 because we're not allowed to experience autonomy because somebody consistently has ownership over us. And we are required to bypass our emotions and our feelings and give them over to God or give them over to our parents because they were, quote, our covering. I remember 
So during this time when I was interviewing her, I reflected on how in October she was quite sheepish to tell me that she was on OnlyFans. Remember that conversation and how I had so many questions and we just talked about that. We talked about how it can feel really silly trying to get the right angle when you're taking these photos. And we'll get into this in the next episode where she talks about the conversations that she had with both men and women as well and how people feel like in these spaces because they're already there that they can ask questions that they might not even feel comfortable asking their therapist or talk about things that they might not even feel comfortable talking to their therapist because this space in society is so taboo and so shrouded in shame that people just won't talk about it. And so they go to these spaces and they feel like they have the freedom because like I said, they're already there. We don't get into this concept of what society labels as sex work. And as soon as we say sex worker, people instantly think prostitution. And there's so, again, so much shame. And I find it interesting. And this was a conversation that I have had, I know, with her and then with other people about how women's bodies prior to really the church, when I mean the church, I mean the big C church, like the Catholic church, um, early, early days, AD, prior to that, how they tried to rein in and control female sexuality, but they bolstered male sexuality. It's okay that men are predatory after women because after all, women do look this way. But prior to that, Greek goddesses, like the female form was worshipped and celebrated. There is a space where men really took over and wanted to control that. And instead of worshipping it in a positive and beautiful way, they began to lust and say that lust was wrong and carnal and place shame over it rather than saying, hey, like it's a natural thing to want to be interested in the female form and the inverse. It's a natural thing for people to want to be interested in the male form rather than celebrating that and continuing it as, wow, this person is really beautiful and this person is really attractive and really interesting. Rather than saying that, they wanted to say, no, it's bad, it's wrong, and actually this person is causing you to do it. Therefore, we're going to vilify that person and we're going to, as a society, we're going to shame them and we're going to put labels on them. And that's where this concept of sex work really came in. But honestly, anytime you are using sex or sexuality to sell something, whether it be yourself or even think about it this way, perfume. Now, my husband and I laugh about this all the time, but just like perfume ads are, they're strange. You never really know what they're selling until they put like Versace or Dior, but they're always very sensual. And that is them using sex to sell a product. That is sex work. Now, there's going to be so much pushback on that, but that's exactly what it is. It doesn't need to be prostitution. That is a form of, but it's that's not the only thing that encompasses sex work. I'm excited to talk to her about that in the next episode, the continuation of this. One of the 
things that I was thinking about is just how the church grooms people on behavior. So for instance, when I was growing up in church, we were told that asking people if they know Jesus, like, of course, that's perfectly acceptable inside of church. You would expect that if you go to church, that they're going to talk about Jesus. What they also talk about is how we should go external from the church and make disciples of Jesus. Ask people if they know Jesus in the grocery store or the your kid's school's PTA meeting. That's something that we were expected to do. However, when we do those in public spaces, the rest of society says that's unexpected behavior. That's not something that we do. And that's actually offensive We were required and called to and groomed to see those offenses as persecution. I'm going to go ahead and go a little bit further because men in the church are told it's okay to objectify women. It's okay to say that woman is tempting me because her shirt is a little too tight. That's a form of of objectification. And it's okay If a grown man goes up to a child and says, this is not okay. You can't dress like this. You can't act like this. You can't wear this. You can't talk to this particular person. And as a church, people come to accept that and girls expect it. However, when you do that external of the church, when men do that external of the church, And they say, oh, that woman is tempting me. That shirt makes me feel uncomfortable. That skirt is too high. And they're held accountable as they should be because that behavior is horrible. They believe that they are being persecuted because their religious beliefs, and they'll tie it back to the Bible, they'll tie it back to Jesus. They believe that their religious beliefs are being infringed on are encroached on because they aren't allowed to control the way that a woman looks on the outside of church as they are on the inside of church. That was one of the things that I really thought about, how the church grooms men from a young age to objectify women and grooms women from a young age to expect being a, we talked a little bit about how the church will always label this type of thing with brokenness. How women that take pictures of themselves and distribute them to people for in exchange for money, how men in the church and women with internalized misogyny will say, oh, that person is broken and they need Jesus. There's always something wrong. When a woman takes power over her body, when a woman ta- when a woman takes that back from the patriarchy, there's going to be that pushback saying that person is broken, that person is wrong. Because if women were to take back power from the patriarchy, that disables the patriarchy, that cuts them off. And the patriarchy is a machine. The patriarchy is what runs our society. So of course we need to vilify and demonize anybody that takes power back from them. And 
recognizing that the majority of the time, women that do this type of work, they're very intelligent. We've talked about this in the podcast that they are paying for a master's degree for a PhD program. They're paying their student loans. And they've just seen a way to exploit the very system that has exploited them to get ahead in life. I would love to know other people's thoughts on this because this is just a really interesting topic and can be quite controversial. I'd love to know what people think about this. I would love for you to email or you can um, you can you can even subscribe to my Patreon for free and you can always message me through there. I just think that this would be an interesting topic to to circle around. Um, so again, this is the breakdown. And there's just so many thoughts that I have throughout the time that I'm interviewing somebody. And I take so many notes. Through season one, I filled up half of a giant notebook um, with notes that I have taken during these interviews. I felt like, okay, these notes are great, but I'm not really sharing them. So now here's an opportunity for me to share them. And I hope that this is something that you all can come to appreciate. And it just continues the conversation that we're having. Just remember that purity culture is rape culture. And purity culture is designed by male leadership in the evangelical movement and also in other high control insular religious communities. So it's important that we all understand that and why this is talked about on focus on your own family is because James Dobson was one of the architects of purity culture and he encouraged things like purity balls. And if you do not know what those are, it is not some like weird um, sexual fetish. Actually, in a, in a way, it probably is. But purity balls are, it's like a father-daughter dance. In fact, the Speaker of the House took his daughters to a purity ball and James Dobson was really the one that architected those. So they go to this dance and these girls um, commit their virginity, their purity to their dads and say that their dads are the ones that hold this for them until they are ready, until the dads see that they are ready to marry. And this usually involves courtship. This involves the dad, the, like a girl at the age of 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 is submitting this, handing this to their dad. And it is very much, there's an exchange of rings or of a ring. There's vows that are taken. It's modeled after a wedding. So these girls are, in essence, marrying their dads and giving full control over to their fathers. That's why I talk about this on this podcast, because this type of behavior is insidious. It is deranged. It is unhealthy, and it ruins the lives of people. And it's not just girls that were impacted by this. Boys also had purity rings as well. And it is sad because they're just not allowed to express or learn about their bodies. They're not allowed to discover this beautiful spectrum that is human sexuality 
they grow up with a lack of understanding and it leads to really traumatizing terrible experiences as adolescents and into adulthood. That's why I talk about it. But thank you so much for this, for joining me on um, this mini breakdown episode. And um, I hope you enjoyed it. Again, please message me and let me know if you enjoyed this. Thank you so much for listening. Please make sure that you are kind to yourself and to others. If you are interested in supporting this show, please click the link at the bottom to my Patreon. These shows take a lot of time and resources, and any support is appreciated. If you are interested in being a guest, please email the show at focusonyourownfamilypodcast at gmail.com. Inside of the show notes, you will find the links to mine and the guests' socials. Please give us a follow. We look forward to talking with you and connecting with you.